singing, feeling good and everything. Just like a bird in the spring, gotta let it out. It's my sweetie, can't you get wild about him? I'll confess, does he love me? That's why I shout. Everybody loves my baby, but my baby don't love nobody but me. Nobody but me. Everybody, and welcome to True Stories of Tinseltown. I have two wonderful guests for you today. Their names are David Fantle and Tom Johnson. And hello, guys. Hello. They have been on before. They were on twice before. They did a book together, Hollywood Heyday, a long time ago. And so much fun. And this is a fun book. It is called, tell us. Come on, get happy. The Making of Summerstock. And it is all behind the scenes stuff uh, on how to how this got made. And as I was asking you, why in the world did you guys pick of all musicals Summerstock? Well, because when you think of Dean Kelly and Judy Garland films, we're always thinking of Wizard of Oz, Meet Me in St. Louis, If Star is Born, An American in Paris Singing in the Rain. But really, this has more of a compelling story. And I think it's, we think it's very historically relevant for, you know, film fans of Judy and Jean, because first of all, it is Judy Garland's final film at MDM after 15 years at the studio, the only studio she knew. It was a troubled production. Certainly part of the reason was some of Judy's issues that she had behind the scenes, but there were other reasons to the delayed production. But the other thing that people, if you may not know Summerstock, it's 109 minutes, but it has some of the finest musical numbers of any musical. We always say there's at least six great quality musical numbers crammed into that 109-minute film. You know, I just rewatched it. I know I saw it when I was a kid because my dad loved musicals and, old. you know, I got all my old Hollywood stuff through my father. And I rewatched it and I love those songs. They're so good. Oh, yeah. I mean, huh? I mean, I think, I'm, you know, we were we we've screened it three times with a live audience. Once in Harmel, Indiana, with Michael Feinstein's Great American Songbook Foundation. Once in Chicago at the Music Box, and this was last weekend at the St. Paul Jewish Community Center, and with live audiences. And they literally, you know, are applauding after most of the musical number. They're coming up to us saying, wow, this thing just knocked us off of our feet. They just didn't really know about this film. And we get so many thank yous for exposing them to this film. Well, one of the things, Grace, that we we sort of did at the very back of the book was we we buttonholed a bunch of contemporary performers you know music people in the music business choreographers dancers even judy impersonators for their take on this movie 73 years later and and everyone loved it all these people uh, you know some of them pretty famous mikhail brezhnikov ben vereen people like that mario cantone from sex in the city they all said that this was an absolute jewel in their memory of, of those MGM musicals. They love this movie. So it still holds up 77 decades plus later. Isn't that amazing? And the print is, I mean, it's in Technicolor. The print is so good. And you think how long ago it was. And it's just beautiful. Just really looks beautiful and sounds beautiful. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and part of the reason is, you know, you had a really steady hand directing the film. Chuck Walters, who had done um, with Judy Easter Parade um, two years earlier, 
So he was a great studio director. And, you know, he was really close personal friends with Judy going back to 1942. And he really knew how to direct her, especially when she was going through some difficult times. And he really helped get her across the finish line, as did, of course, Gene Kelly and the fabulous supporting actors in that film, uh, Marjorie Maine and Eddie Bracken and Gloria DeHaye and Phil Silvers, people like that. They were so good. I love those guys. I love Eddie Brock. I love them all. And I love Phil Silvers. And they had such a nice chemistry together. But the whole thing about the making of it was kind of like, Judy, was this her like worst, do you think, of her, you know, not showing up, things like that, her her drugs and things like that? Tom, I don't think it was her worst, considering she lost a lot of plum films, including Hand Pitcher Gun and The Barclays of Broadway and Royal Wedding. So she started or was taught to be in all of those films. And so because of her personal troubles, she could not continue or actually be in them. But at least with Summerstock, she got across the finish line and completed the production. I would add add to that that uh, possibly the pirate a year before Summerstock was made was uh, maybe her worst as far as uh, health issues and long, you know, kind of long absences. I think she even had to do retakes on on the pirate which she had done that was a second film with gene kelly incidentally and so she had to go back and do retakes on that and Summerstock, you know i mean they got through it it was a lot like dave said a long production window but a lot of that had to do with these extra songs that were that were deemed needed at the end of the production like three or four you know extra uh, numbers that need to be filmed as songs that needed to be written and orchestrated and rehearsed and that's really what pushed some of the delays out. It wasn't all at Judy's feet. Well, yeah. thank heavens that two of those numbers, Grace, were the Get Happy, one of her iconic numbers. I love that numbers. one. Oh, my God. How can you not get happy when you hear that song? I just love exactly. that song. It's on, a sh- it's on the short list of any Garland fans um, of all the film numbers he did. And then on top of that, so they knew they needed a showstopper for Judy, and they put in Get Happy, thankfully. And that wasn't even the last thing that was filmed. The last thing that was filmed was Gene Kelly's solo dance with a squeaky board and old newspaper. And Gene, you know, most people don't realize this, Gene has said publicly a number of times that that's his favorite all-time solo dance routine. And where is this? It's in Summerstock. You know what I noticed big time was I love so much his rolled jeans or his rolled pants with his white socks. And that's where Michael Jackson got those, that whole idea, you know, the the loafers, the white socks. And it just really shows those tootsies off when he's boogieing down on the floor, our jean, you know? And it's such a great look. And he was cute. My God, he was a cutie. Oh, he, you know, a lot of people think he really look, never looks better than in Summerstock. And, you know, if you know Gene, he came from the stage and Broadway. You know, he, it, it, there were times where Gene could sort of eat the scenery a little hammy, but because of his love and sympathy for Judy, I think he comes across with a really warm performance. He did. And it's cute. And and they had a really nice chemistry. And all I could think, I think you're right, because I've seen Gene in a lot of films and straight acting, which he was very good as well, doing straight acting without musicals. But he was really, I'm just looking at him, what those twinkly eyes. He's so cute. That's all I thought, along with being talented, that muck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, too, was that 
you know, it, this came at a period in his career that was he, he sort of shoehorned this movie in between his first directorial effort, co-direction with Stanley Donner, which was on the town, the movie preceding Summerstock, which was sort of a groundbreaker. And then the next two films after Summerstock were in American in Paris and Singing in the Rain. So he was at the very pinnacle of his power and, and you know, his box office and everything, right? Right. And, and Summerstock, you know, he said he would spend a year if that's what it took to get Judy through this film. He was not going to abandon her. He was going to be there as a support for her, even though he and really pretty much everyone else in the cast, including Judy and the director of, of the film, Chuck Walters, didn't really want to do it. They thought that the, the screenplay was a little bit trite and kind of a throwback to the Judy and Mickey Rooney. Let's put on know, a show. show. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it kind of reminded me of that, but not. Really, you know, because it's much more sophisticated. It's like, come on, gang. And it's really a cute film. And well, and I, I, there's some clever stuff in it. And I think, as you mentioned, I mean, again, when we've done these live screenings, I mean, it's almost like from a comedic standpoint, Eddie Bracken is neurotic. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people think (laughs) he sort of steals the show. He's great. I love him. You guys would know him too. Miracle of Morgan Creek. Is that it? Yeah, sure. He was great. He really was. They were all so good, but he's just, to me, he's adorable. Be still my heart. I think he's really cute. The thing about Eddie Bracken in this movie and really Hail the Conquering Hero and all of that kind of stuff that he did, and Miracle Morgan Creek that he did for Preston Sturgis in the early 40s, he was playing a character in this, kind of a one that he had played in Hail the Conquering Hero as a guy that beset with hay fever, sort of the nerdy guy, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's where he milked his laughs was really out of that character. Whereas, you know, not to downgrade Phil Silvers, but he was just doing Phil Stover's shtick. Yeah, so exactly. He was shtick. Shtick yeah. up yeah. wazoo. Fun, but that dates a little bit. You it know, that does. Kind of Eddie, so. Eddie Bracken's forever. And I like Phil Silvers, don't get me wrong. I thought he was very good in this as well. And I thought they were a really nice cast. I love Marjorie oh, Bain, Glory yeah. as a spoiled brat sister. I mean, everybody's there at 6 a.m., yeah. you know, hoeing the fields. It's a farm, everybody, if you don't know what it is. And she's in her bed getting breakfast in bed. I'm like, get yeah, up. Get off. Yes, get up, will you? You know, the other thing is, you know, when we talked about a throwback to the put on a show in the barn, I think one of the big changes or the change is that Judy Garland's character of Bain plays a very strong, independent woman, almost like an entrepreneur business person, which I don't think was really the Judy character in those Mickey Rooney films. No, she was a cute neighborhood girl. She wasn't yes, uh, exactly. the strong. And she's cute. Another thing with that, which I was noticing, they said she put on in between her staying away that she put on a few pounds here and there. And I did notice it. And the consistency. But, you know, she was not fat. She's short. She was four foot 11. You put on five pounds, it shows. Whereas if you're taller, it doesn't show as much. She was teeny. And I thought she looked really pretty. I think Judy's stunning in her own way. You know, know, she she wanted to be a glamour puss. Didn't Phil Silver said she would have given it all up, her talent, this, that, just to be this glorious, glamorous Hollywood, you know, Hubba Hubba Lana Turner type, Lana Turner, who she worked with in Ziegfeld Girls. But um, yes, exactly. And Gene, he is a task. You guys interviewed Gene. Yeah, we were at his home twice. Yeah, yeah. 
What do you think of him? Oh, I mean, he was wonderful. And our first meeting with Gene at his home in 1978, when we were 18 years old, and our other meeting with Fred Astaire, I mean, they not only solidified our love affair with classic films and musicals, but they were so universally revered that those initial meetings with Astaire and Kelly just opened up the floodgate for literally hundreds of interviews that followed. I know. I was telling someone today, I said, yeah, they said, oh, Fred, is, you talked to Fred? He, You talked to Fred? Okay, we'll do it. It was like the cascade of you talk yeah. to Fred's or Jean's or whatever, because you talked to some amazing guys and women. Yeah, Fred was the golden ticket, the Willy Wonka golden <laughs> ticket. We had a Polaroid uh, snapshot taken with him, and that was really gained us entree for the next 30 years. <laughs> doing all these old legends, because they, they said exactly what you said, especially Cagney. He said, well, if Fred saw you, then I'll see you. So, I mean, you know, it, it, Fred opened the doors. I mean, Gene, too. But, you know, we had the physical visual proof of, uh, you know, interviewing a stare with that photo. And we sent that to every interview. <laughs> Good for you. And you got it. You, uh, you, I'm going to tell you guys, I'm going to link you up to all of their stuff. But back to this book and uh, adorable. They were kids. 18. Oh, my God. Got to read it. Funny, funny, funny. So. Gene is a taskmaster. And I know, mm-hmm. I think you said to me, David, that it's worth it because look what the, the product is. Because he can be really mean and, you know, kind of a lot of people didn't like him because of the way he dealt with them. Well, yeah, I, we, we sort of come to the conclusion. I mean, obviously, he was wonderful and warm when we met him. But, you know, I, I think that's a bit overblown because we always say making art is like making sa- sausage. It's not always pretty, but the end result hopefully is pretty tasty. And, you know, when you say taskmaster, I don't think that might be a little harsh. I mean, and the term perfectionist maybe in 2023 is a negative, but I don't when you're creating art. He didn't expect anything from anyone he worked with that he didn't expect from himself. And, you know, when you, the, you know, the Hollywood lore about, you know, working Debbie Reynolds to her feast lad. I mean, the reality is on the second side of that, Judy, I mean, Judy, Debbie always said that she owes her entire career to Gene Kelly. And so the fact that he was a perfectionist is a positive and we're reaping the benefits through his films to this day. Now, I don't think being, being a perfectionist is negative today, but it's it's just different. It's sort of like, you know, you can't really yell at it. You can't be what they were in those days. That's why I love the old films. But um, yeah. yeah, they do. They do. But and he's great. And if you were those high waters and wasn't a musical <laughs> musical. He would have been at Orville. But it's such... Judy went to therapy. She went to a sanitarium prior, right? Yeah, it wasn't a sanitarium. She was at a renowned hospital on two different states in 1949 in Boston. And she was essentially there to decrease her dependence on prescription medications and get her sleep pattern in order. And so she had to, I was, so I wouldn't call them a sanitarium. And in order to do that, or when they felt that they had those things under control, the doctors told MVM that they thought she was ready to return to Hollywood and start rehearsals on Summerstock. But that didn't really, that didn't really last. And I know everybody loved her from what I read. Everybody really loved her. She was kind. She was fun. She'd have parties for when, when crew were done. And, but then uh-huh. why do you think someone doesn't show up like that? 
What, what was she well, thinking? Was it she was groggy? She was. Well, Tom, why don't you talk about the contrast between Louis B. Mayer and just sort of benevolence toward these issues versus his successor, Tori Sherry? Yeah. Well, the thing was is that when Summerstock was being filmed in 1949, 1950, the studio system, you know, which all of them were contracted to, which stay, you know, stem back to the 1920s, which Louis V. Mayer almost founded that whole system. It was sort of coming to an end. It was a few years out, but, but, you know, things weren't great in the industry. You know, uh, attendance at theaters had fallen off and TV was getting bigger. So, and, but Louis B. Mayer loved Judy and really was loyal to her and stood by her. In fact, he forgave her some of the debt that MGM paid for, you know, during her hospital stays in Boston. I mean, he was very, very sort of paternal. I mean, there were some hicks with him, too. But but Dory Sherry was coming in as head of production. He was really going to replace replace. Louis D. Mayer right after Summerstock and, and Mayer left the studio. Sherry had no empathy for anyone, you know, who had personal problems and he didn't even like musicals. He was not a big fan. So he had really no empathy towards Judy. He, he just said, well, she'd better buck up and get with it. You know, and, and and that's sort of partly what led to her leaving the studio after, you know, Summerstock was her last film after 15 years at the studio. But Mayer, I mean, you know, for all the back and forth that, that's been written about Louis D. Mayer and Judy Garland, some of which she used to say just for, jo- you know, to make jokes about it. You know, he was he was pretty paternalistic and and ultimately pretty benevolent at the end for giving her debts. He said that. You know, when people wanted to fire her right during the production, when some of those delays were happening where she was out sick, he said she made the studio a fortune in the good days and we should stick by her. We're going to stick with her. So, I mean, that's, you know, a, a tremendous vote of confidence, which Dory Sherry, if he had been in that position, he would have ousted her immediately, we think. Probably, because if he's like that and he didn't have empathy and I'm sure they didn't have a tolerance for her. Right. So with Mayer, though, I have to say, and I'm going to ask you guys if you think I'm off there, but didn't he in the he was there for Judy and when she first started, right? Right. Yeah. 1935 when she first signed. Sure. But didn't he help get the drugs to wake her up, to help her lose weight, to do things like that, to put her to sleep? So, maybe- well, you know, again, there's probably greater Garland experts that could address the you know, right. when this all started. I mean, I've heard things, you know, that it was started by her mother back in the 1930s. I believe mom um, was a part of it big time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, whether it was Louis B. Mayer or one of his lieutenants. Yeah. I mean, Judy's talked about on a number of occasions when she was working with Nikki, how they had to give her, give them uppers to get their energy up while they were filming. And then they had to give her them downers so they can catch a few hours of sleep so they could start all over again. So yeah, these, these issues started back in the thirties, but then again, you know, there's other personal issues that she was confronted with by the time of Summerstock, including a marriage on the rocks with Vincent Minnelli. She had the care and nurturing and taking of light, little life of Manelli, the toddlers. But she had a lot of things going on in her life in addition to the drug dependency issues. Yeah. And Gene was great. And he was he really was in her corner. And I, I found that very admirable how he did that. And also, Gloria DeHaven absolutely adored Judy. And I don't know how I felt about Gloria DeHaven. <laughs> liked her, but you know what I'm saying? I guess because Judy and Jean kind of overshadow everybody. 
But she was good. She really was good. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, she was, you know, she had a nice voice. She was cute and perky. adorable. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, you know, you can sit there and say, why do some repeat superstardom and others don't? And glory to Haven. And we sort of talk about maybe some of the reasons she didn't reach that A-listed MVM during the time she was there pretty much throughout the 1940s. But she was just, again, one of these stars for a number of reasons, never elevated to A-list status. But she was a likable, personable, supporting player in films like Summerstock. Well, she was very good. I, I was reading, it wasn't in your book that it said that Gloria got suspended a lot because she turned down a lot of movies. Yeah, she got into trouble that way. And she also... Didn't, uh, Louis B. Mayer wasn't thrilled that he married an older actor named John Thane. And oh, so yeah. he was never really happy with that union. Oh, that was Miracle 34th Street, dude. John Payne, yeah. Yeah, the 20th Century Fox leading man. The yeah. dreamboat John Payne. <laughs> what, what in your research and writing the book surprised you guys the most? Tom, do you want to go? Sure. I, you know, I mean, there were a ton of surprises, but what, what, one of the big, well, two big surprises, one of them was that Gene Kelly solo was the last thing filmed concerning the movie. I mean, everyone had, you know, for years and years, it's been written that Judy Garland, it all ended with Summerstock after she had left the film. And a couple of few weeks later, she was brought back all trimmed down to do Summerstock, to do the uh, Come On, Get Happy number. But it was really Gene who did the squeaky board and newspaper dance at the very after Get Happy was filmed, that that was the last thing that was that was completed. And that we think that he possibly directed himself in that number, because by then Chuck Walters was gone. He had been he had left the studio or had left the film. And, you know, so when Gene came back, he, you know, we think for all intents and purposes, he not only, you know, choreographed and danced in the number, he uh, directed himself, too. I thought that was pretty interesting, different. I had never read that or, or found any information about that before. We we kind of uncovered it. Well, yeah. And, you know, what Tom said, I mean, and Gene saying that he chant that A was his all time favorite routine. That surprised me big time. Yeah. And that he channeled Buster Keaton, the silent comedian. But I, I think that the other thing that sort of surprised me, and it was sort of a myth buster, you know, we talk about, and it's sort of popular to talk about that this was looked upon as a reteaming of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. And, you know, through our research, we found that in the Hollywood Reporter, as early as December 1948, that's almost a year before the film went in front of the cameras, they announced Summerstock as a vehicle for Gene Kelly and Judy Garland. And so Gene Kelly was attached to this film from over a year before it hit the cameras. And Mickey Rooney was never publicly attached to the film. Good thing. <laughs> they oh, don't yeah. dislike me. You guys met him, too. You interviewed Mickey. Well, yeah, he's, you know, you could say he's another king of embellishment or as R.J. <laughs> Wagner told us, you know, certifiably crazy. I love that. R.J. R.J. Oh, aren't you guys tough? I know. Well, R. J. Wagner, Robert Wagner, if you're not in. People call him R.J. after meeting him for about four seconds. It's just call me R.J. Yeah. He's actually the guy. I know. I like him. I wish I could have interviewed him, but I know he's not doing him anymore. 
so that was just surprise. I was surprised that that was his favorite of all dances, that that's the one he really thought was, because it was great. And he, honestly, I love those socks. I love those shoes. I love, he, he just was really cute. And, you know, to keep the energy going, especially when you're delaying, delay and delay. It, it, and keep positive. Well, it's showbiz. You know, you got to put that face on. But yeah, it's pretty amazing when you, you put that together with a lot of the stuff that was going on behind the scene. Yeah. And a lot of people really Go ahead, Tom. wonderful about the movie is that, you know, it was made during the golden age of musicals when they were all really the dance musical was sort of coming to an end. It was maybe five, six years before the end of the dance musical. And the studio system was fracturing. And yet you had all these, you know, star talent and then below the line people, gaffers, grips, cameramen, all that, you know, orchestrators that really knew how to put these kind of films together. And it's it's become sort of a lost art. There are people that know how to do these films. Rob Marshall, who uh, blurbed the book uh, and, and really liked it, is one of them. But very, very few really know how to make these films. It's kind of a lost art. But back then, they did. And and the wonderful thing about the movie, as you said, Grace, was that, you know, there was all this turmoil, obviously, behind it, which we cover. And, and you know, this backstory that's pretty dramatic, almost like a Greek tragedy. It sometimes. is, yeah. But at the end, at the end of the day, when you see the film, people love it. Even today, they come out, they come out with a wonderful feeling and and that's due to the professionalism of everyone involved where, you know, all those heartaches and all those problems that, that they were dealing with behind the scenes were not going to be shown up on screen. You're not going to see any of that. And and that was professionalism. It was. Definitely. And it was. I really, you know, honestly, I'm looking at it. I'm like, how good were they and how just so talented, honestly. It, it just goes, you know, the songwriters, the whole thing. They have all the people in it, everybody. You know, the behind-the-scenes stuff. You have little bios of the actors, each of them, Gene, mm-hmm. Bracken, whatever. Oh, I found this interesting, that Bob Hope didn't want to work with Eddie Bracken because he was too funny. Was that in our book? <laughs> yes! Yeah! Yeah, do you remember that? Yeah. It was in uh, your book. Yeah. It was in this recent oh. book, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know. I love that. I I thought it's funny because I see. Yeah, no, Bob, because Eddie was very naturally funny. Yeah. Great characters, whereas Bob, Bob was great. Bob was funny, too. But Bob did Bob Hope type stuff. Bob was Bob Hope in almost every movie he ever made, whereas Eddie, he'd play a character and he'd, he'd you know, he'd generate laughs out of the character. So I think that that might have intimidated Bob a little bit. Well, he was fine. Well, and the other thing is you take an actor, a great actor from the Orson Welles soup named Ray Collins, who plays his father. I mean, Ray Collins isn't going for laugh. He's playing it 100% straight and serious. But by playing it straight and serious, he's very immutable. He was. And I love him. He was in uh, Orson Welles. I'm trying to think. What was he in? He was in Citizen Carrie Car- Mason. Well, you Payne. Correct. Um, Miss, Miss Magnificent Ambersons. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have to think about that one about, I didn't know that, but I do remember him because I just had like a, they have it on Paramount Plus. I went through a Perry Mason marathon like recently and I just love him. Sergeant Trask or Lieutenant Trask or something like that. He was wonderful. The whole cast just kind of gelled. And honestly, the dancing and, and you know, one, 
I got to do this because I don't want to just, I'm not trying to be mean to Judy. I love Judy, but this is one thing Gene said. And I have to say, what in the world was that about? He went to someone, this is one of the times he went to someone and said that she smelled funny and it wasn't B.O. It wasn't because she smelled, smelled, but he thought it smelled like formaldehyde. Yeah. That, I'm like, that poor woman. Holy heartbreak. He- that was a story where he went to actually went up to Dory Sherry, if I recall, and said that. And we uh, we weren't the first one to say that. That was, if you look at Gerald Frank, his Judy biography in the early 1970s, he interviewed so many people because they were mostly alive back then. And that was in the Gerald Frank transcript of his discussion and his conversation with Gene. And so that's directly from Gene on a recording that Gerald Frank did. And it was because of some drugs she was taking, right? She yeah, was chemicals, yeah. chemical, chemical, chemicals in your body. And that's, you know, and I think when you sweat, like if you eat garlic or something, it sweats through your pores. Fun fact. I don't know everybody if that's true, but I know that we, if you have something really gross, like something like that, I think it just comes out. And that's so sad when you think of how talented she was, but I'm so glad she had him to help her get through. I didn't really see huge weight gain. I really, I have to say I didn't. I was expecting because I made a big brouhaha out of it. Well, if anyone, you know, who's a Judy Garland buff, I think if you're being honest, you're going to look at her in The Pirate and maybe a few of the other films and say that she looked alarmingly thin. So most people, when you see Somerset, she looks healthy. I thought she looked great. I really did. You know, I could see that she put on a couple pounds here and there, but I thought her, she looked beautiful. Her face was great. I mean, like I said, that the technicolor, the whole thing, they all, she and Jean were just glorious. They looked so good. And they, yeah. love, they really had a nice chemistry, very much so. And you knew that Judy felt safe with him and he was in her corner. You know, she felt that and you knew that's a, you know, that makes you feel like a million bucks when you have that. And everyone was in her corner. And, you know, credit producer Joe Pasternak for surrounding her with people she had loyalty to and confidence in and trust. And that's, you know, and they were kind. They did it. There was a story about Eddie Bracken saying that he went to her saying she had, he had to go back to a Broadway thing and he talked to her about it so he could finish his scenes. But you guys say that he said it, but there's nothing that backs that up, right? That well, he no, he did say that. He did <laughs> say that. And the point of it was that if Dory Sherry or a studio executive had asked Judy to do this, she might have given them the middle finger. Oh, yeah. But because because of Eddie Bracken and their friendship, whether you know it was true or not, or whatever excuse he was making that he had to leave the production, she came through with him and said, you know, basically, Eddie, you know, you're my friend, and for you, I will be there for you. I think she was a good friend. I mean, she 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 was loyal, and everybody said she was fun. Jean. Not he he's not an outgoing kind of guy, right? He's more local. Even his daughter, you know, Gene's daughter, who we interviewed, Carrie Kelly Novick, said that, you know, her dad was always intense, you know, all throughout his entire life. And, you know, that was that perfectionism and that drive and that thing, you know, that that sort of impulse to make everything as good as it can be. And, you know, which and but, you know, Eddie Bracken sort of said said to us, too, or he said in the interview, that, you know, Gene was the admiral of the group. And sometimes you got to pull rank a little bit when you're the admiral of the group, and that, as he was on Summerstock. And, you know, and so Eddie had nothing but praise for him. He said he was always working on his strengths. 
always rehearsing, you know, during downtime. I mean, you know, you see, you know, they were trying to make, you know, uh, lemonade out of lemons that they thought at the time with the film, you know, so there was pro- there was really more pressure on everyone involved in that than there might have been if the script or the co-stars had been, you know, had been a little more healthy. So there was that sort of looming in the background the the entire time that they had to get this thing done and they had to do it great, which they did. And no matter what troubles beset, you know, the the daily shooting schedule, they had to be overcome. So, you know, that was the deal. And it came into this really great film. And I want to tell everybody, you can watch this on YouTube. I got it on YouTube. I rewatched it. So you can find a summer stock and it looks fabulous. You can see it on YouTube as a FYI. Also, as far as that goes, they're all together. They're a cohesive group. How long did it take for that to actually get in the can to be finished? Well, it took about six months. And, you know, when you say that to people today and they look at these 50 or $100 million productions that they're doing, they're going, okay, six months, that doesn't seem that long. But in the studio factory system in which MGM was the king of the musical, it was a long period. Now, the number of shooting days was in the 40-something, but that wasn't that unusual for shooting days for a musical. But a musical, typical musical around that time at MGM might have been 40 shooting days and maybe a three- or four-month period. This was 40 shooting days in a six-month period. So, again, by MGM standards, it was a long shoot, but, you know, people stretch their heads and say, six months doesn't seem like that much. I would think six months is really long. What do you mean, by filming? I mean, just the filming, not the whole, are you talking no, about? No, yeah, from, long- the moment, from, from the cameras rolling to wrapping up production, yeah. Six wow. months was considered a long window. It does seem long, and they went over budget, but surprisingly, not as much as I thought. And I um, think it was ten. I mean, $40,000, insignificant by studio accounting standards. Yeah, and it did it did end up not really breaking even, but it did very well, and critics loved it, I think, didn't they? From yeah, what I read. We do a long, we do a deep dive into studio economics. The studios, they are notorious for what we call fuzzy math, and we talked to enough people, we listed as much available data as we could, we certainly come to the conclusion that Summerstock did not lose the studio any money. In fact, it continues to generate revenues to this day for the sharing company that owns MGM title, that being Warner Brothers. The DVDs, things like that, that they go all over the place, which gives them a new life, which is great. But isn't it so weird? I'm, I'm so glad you guys documented because I want you to come on again and, and talk and kind of do another one for everybody. But the other one, I hope you come on again. And... You got how many people really, really get the chance to talk to these people? Now they're all dead, basically. I don't know who's alive anymore. You talked to Andre Preven, who is a member of the, the group as well. You talked to so many people. And did, what was it? Harold Prince? He said, Why are you doing summer stock, right? Hal Prince? Well, Hal Prince, the legendary producer, director of Broadway. His his wife is, uh, was Saul Chaplin's daughter, and Saul Chaplin was a composer, one of the musical directors on Summerstock. So it was through trying to get to Saul Chaplin's daughter that we were able to get an email exchange with the legendary Hell Prince. And when we just, just described what we were doing, uh, 
that was sort of his response, sort of scratching his head saying, gosh, that sounds like a sort of schizophrenic project, doesn't it? <laughs> but it was good, it, you know, because it does have the drama and sort of the tragedy behind the scenes. And, you know, we have to give props to everybody because you're right about behind the scene people. They don't really get any of the, you know, glory, but they work their butts off to get stuff together and get it right for everyone. No problem. So behind the scene people, bravo to you, because my ex-husband was a behind the scenes guy. And, you know, I knew so many of them, you know, because we go to places and I'd meet them and they're so talented and such hard workers and they do deserve their props. That is for sure. They were fabulous. You guys from the book, what do you think makes what to you is like the most interesting thing, not the most surprising, the most interesting, that the best thing you think that you're discussing in the book, your favorite thing? Well, I don't know. It's, I, I don't particularly have any favorite. I thought it's, it was interesting going through this four year process to get the book completed. And I, as, as you said, I think my biggest takeaway is that for 109 minutes, it can stand on its own two feet with any of the more well-known MGM musicals when it comes to the quantity and quality of the musical numbers. Wonderful you. I love that song. So it's also really, you guys are going to love the music. And I know there are so many people because I really don't do shows. I think I've done one show about musicals, one in all my, my uh, storied career, (laughs) my fabulous Mm -hmm. career. No, I mean, just one. So you guys will be another. And there are so many people who love the musicals, old ones. What I was going to say, I got lost and I digressed, but we're seeing now on TCM, you know, classic films of the 80s. Now, I'm like, these aren't classic films. These, you know, there's some really nice ones, but it's so funny how we get, I hope they still have TCM and still always show these films, you know? Well, I'm totally, I, I, you're not going to get disagreements from us. You know, TCM, when it was founded and started decades ago with Robert Osborne. I love him. You know, I miss him. He was my guy. Yeah, he he did so much and the network did so much to expose and popularize some of these classic films with a, a younger generation of audiences. So obviously TCM has been significant just as that's entertainment introduced a whole new audience to musicals back in 1974. Isn't that what got you guys really into the musicals? Yeah, it was it was that's entertainment, really a compendium. We used to have a musical week. Uh, there were two musical weeks on local television in St. Paul, Minnesota, and one was the Stair Rogers movies, and the other was just these usually MGM musicals that that they that you know for five days, Monday through Friday. They'd have a new musical every uh, every day, and that's where we really. Fir- I think we first saw Summerstock on on you know Musical Week, but then the embarrassment of riches that we you know found out about these vis a vis that's entertainment really started Dave and I down our road, you know, with uh, renting movies to show at nursing homes. Wasn't it that- called Reels on Wheels? R E E L S. No films on wheels. Films, films on wheels. Yeah. Isn't Reels on Wheels good though? <laughs> I I could swear it was reels on wheels, but you guys were sweet. What what adorable kid. 18 years old, you go to Hollywood. It's such a 
both books I highly recommend, and especially their summer stock, because there's so much really, you know, really good stuff behind the scenes. And you find out about each of the people, you know, all the actors, the whole thing. And it gives you, when you watch it, like for me, you know, reading the book, and then I watched it, you really get the appreciation because you know what's going on, what, what really, what it took to get this to the screen. For your book. Oh, thank you. For, it was thank really you good. And you guys are showing it. You did it. I have to ask you, because I'm really curious. I, Tom, you're in California, right? Yeah. And David, where are you? Minnesota? Milwaukee. Milwaukee. So how do you get the book written? It took you four years. Do you have, like, you talk to each other and notes? Or... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we, gather, we gather a lot of information and research, literally binders of information, including scripts and production notes and interviews and transcripts. We literally, and articles and reviews, and we put them into binders. And then Tom and I spent a good week together in person, literally going through every page of all of these binders, hundreds of pages where we would take notes and highlight things that we thought would end up in the book. And we would work on our outline and the format and the whole process. And then we would start writing. And, you know, Tom maybe would take the lead on something. I would take the lead on something. When it came time to do Zoom interviews or phone interviews, most of the time when possible, we double teamed on that. So, yeah, it was a collaborative process that isn't really new to us. It's really something that we've been doing for decades together. You guys are best friends in high school? Middle yeah. school. How middle, cute. Middle. Oh, my God. That's so sweet that you guys are pals. You did these. And they're really good books. That's all I can say. You know, well, thank you. It, it's like the movie. You know, you, you get the book together and it it works. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I... Like I said, I read it, watched the movie again. I I would recommend you doing that, everybody, if you get the book and watch the movie. It's really fun to to go, oh, wow, this and I know what happened here and I know this and this. And that's a really great companion to watch the movie with after you read their book. It's a goodie and a lot of fun. And those that music is fabulous. Judy got canned two weeks after it ended, right? It was September of 1950, yeah, and... You know, you use the term canned. I mean, the reality is, they, you know, they, they she got released from her contract. Some say it was mutual. But as we alluded to, you know, I think Dory Sherry and the direction the studio was taking by that time really needed people who were being well paid to be on time and get the job done. So I guess, you know, I'm at the studio came to an end. Yeah. And she was there for 15 years. She had an amazing, what do you call that? Body of work, amazing body of work from MGM, because that's where, you know, the Wizard of Oz, she she did it from MGM. And well, that if you're going to go out, she did a good movie to go out with at MGM. And she did so many other films. Yeah. And these guys, they have interviews with Lorna Luff, Judy's daughter, with Gene Kelly's daughter. I ask you, Annette. Hi, Annette. I told her you guys were coming on. And she said... She's a listener and she was a dancer, whatever. And her daughter was as, is as well. And she told me, I think I remember you saying something about her, but Gene Kelly's last wife, she met her in a gunkwit, Maine. Does she act? No, you mean the, the Gene Kelly's last wife? I think right. She was working on a project with at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Gene was narrating and that's how they met back, you know, a few decades ago. And she... But I mean, now she was more of a 
No, she's never, I don't think she has any acting background. I believe she was a archivist slash researcher. No, I mean, in Ngunkwit, maybe they were showing a film in his, one of his films and she was there as a guest. I wasn't really sure. Previous, I mean, his previous wife, Jeannie Coyne, his second wife, was his dance um, assistant. And she appears in Summerstock. And of course, his first wife, Betsy Blair, was an actress. In fact, she was the leading lady opposite Ernest Borgman and Marty. So she was wonderful. Clara, it was, yeah, was great. His first two wives definitely had a show business slash acting slash dancing background, particularly dancing with Jeannie, um, his second wife. But he, his third wife met him at the Smithsonian. And to our knowledge, doesn't per se have, you know, an acting background. Yes. So what was I going to ask you? I'm blanking you guys. I'm blanking here. So do you have places you're making? A, I know you have one in New York and you're going to send that to me. You want to tell everybody in the New York area where they can see you guys? Sure. Well, the film forum is actually showing the film in its glorious 35 millimeter original Technicolor print down on Houston Street in the West Village. They'll be screening the film, and Tom and I will be there on Sunday, November 19th. I believe if you go to the film forum, it's about a 7.50 p.m. start time for that. And we'll do a short spiel, sign some books, and we'll have a longer presentation with special guest Richard Maltby Jr. and the legendary film critic Rex Reed. I want to meet him. <laughs> that will be Monday. Yeah. That will be Monday, November twentieth at six thirty p.m. at the National Arts Club in Gramercy Park. So if you go to the National Arts Club, go to their calendar, you'll see our event for November twentieth. But they certainly advise pre-registration because there's a limited capacity for the room. And if you've never been to the Film Forum or the National Arts Club. They're amazing facilities, amazing venue. I can, yeah, I've never been to the other one, but I've been to the film forum a bunch of times. And it is such a great place. And it's really does show, I know someone else who did a book signing there and it's a great theater. If you're in the area, I would advise you to go there and check. It's so much fun to see these movies on the big screen, like they were originally shown. It's, I don't exactly. think there's anything like it. it. It kind of gives you the chills. Tom, how are you in there? <laughs> How you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. Good. Okay. So, guys, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I really am such fans of you both. And you know how you were on a couple of years ago. I love you. And please do come on again. I would we, we do this. But come on again and, and talk some more about um, your wonderful Hollywood Heyday book. And I just love you guys. And I am so glad you guys are getting such good press with this and good reviews. And Great. Thank, Thank you so you. much for coming on. You're wonderful. Thanks, Grace, and hope we can uh, hope we can meet you in New York. I hope so yeah, too. Great. So we, be fun. I, I would love it. I would really love okay. it. Okay. You'll know me. I'm I'm gonna wear, be wearing my glamorous frock, my okay. rhinestone studded evening dress. Ha ha. There you go. I'll, I'll okay. look like a dish. Anyway. <laughs> we look forward to it. <laughs> Okay, so thank you guys. I really appreciate it. They will. It. We'll hopefully see you soon. I hope so, yeah. too. Take care. And Tom Johnson, David Fantle, come on, get happy, everybody. Hallelujah. Yes. Thank okay. you. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.
I'm been happy as a king, feeling good and everything. Just like a bird in the spring, gotta let it out. It's my sweetie, can't you get while the body mark confess? Does he love me? That's why I shout. Everybody loves my baby, but my baby don't love nobody but me. Nobody but me. Now everybody wants my baby, but my baby don't want nobody but me. That's plain to see. That's why everybody loves my baby, but my baby don't love nobody but me. Nobody but me.